Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage on the New Year weekend. In early December, I was offered the chance to talk to renowned British car designer Peter Stevens. He's best known for designing racing cars and luxury cars, including the Jaguar XJR15 and being chief designer on the McLaren F1 supercar. The snazzy stuff, as he calls it. But for him, it's all about design. And another of his projects was a village utility vehicle called the Geo in India. For the first part of this program, we're going back to some Hong Kong technology from 1888, so maybe that's a giveaway. Peter Stevens was in town for the opening of the revamped Hong Kong Peak Tram, which he was involved with. The tram cars are now a bit longer, can take eight wheelchairs, which is great, and among other new design aspects, have an air cooling system. So you're nicely cooled while looking at that spectacular view. I'll be doing a separate Hong Kong heritage on board the Peak Tram in a few weeks' time, but I enjoyed talking to Peter about the engineering behind funicular railways and how they work up that steep, steep slope. So that's the first part of the programme. But you see, Peter Stevens has an interesting collection of cars, including hot rods and Ford Model Ts, so we might need to digress a little. And he also has a very interesting family. His uncle, Dennis Jenkinson, was a famous British sports journalist who was navigator for racing driver Sterling Moss in a thousand-mile race in Italy in 1955. So I'm going to go slightly out of the Hong Kong remit, but I can't miss that. A quick disclaimer, we don't talk about the McLaren F1 and stuff like that, but there's plenty of motoring journalists who do and videos online. So first, here's a chat with Peter Stevens about the revamped Hong Kong Peak Tram. I talked with a couple of friends of mine in England about what I was doing, and they're both interested in design things, and quite separately, both of them said, well, I used to go to school on the Peak Tram. I went up to school at the Peak, you know, and one of them got on at the terminus and the other one got on at May Road Station, and they remembered going to school. You're on the Hong Kong Peak Tram as a designer, going up and down to familiarise yourself with it. So what did you notice about the Hong Kong engineering? Well, what was fascinating and what I really enjoyed, I didn't know, at the time, I didn't know anything about funiculars other than the fact that they ran on rails and a very serious cable pulled them up hill or mountain. But I didn't know anything about the technology, so I asked for a day where I could just watch how it worked. I'd get on and off, I'd stop at all the intermediate stations, and... I'd understand how, because I hadn't really grasped the fact that there are two cars and they pass each other at what's called the passing loop. And the method that they do it by without having points and things that could be unreliable is ingenious. It was originally invented by a Scots engineer who was involved in the Peak Tram 1888 when it opened. And the technology is still exactly the same. And it worked wonderfully well. I mean, the interesting thing is that immediately I thought, as I suppose any person who likes engineering would, so what happens if the cable breaks? Now, the endearing thing with the Swiss, who are famous for making these, is that they call it the rope. But it's a rope that's made of multi-strands of extraordinarily strong steel, and it's, it's wound and woven in such a way that it's the best possible way that you can make a steel cable. And when the, the steel cable actually stops a special brake which grabs the track. It doesn't stop the wheels because it would just go 
skidding down. So it it grabs the track. So if the cable breaks, it stops itself immediately. So the tram would just stand there? Yeah, and it'll just stay still. The extraordinary thing is there is no evidence of a cable ever breaking, but you always have to allow for that. So it's done on weight? No, well, the weight is interesting because, uh, just as a small diversion, there are some funicular railways in Switzerland which worked on a water tank and when one car was at the top, a local stream would fill this water tank and eventually it would become heavier than the car at the bottom. And so they would change places. When it got to the end, it would let all the water out, at which point it's lighter than the other one, and it, it does the reverse travel. So they're very ingenious like that, you know. And the way that this one functions is that in the afternoons, the cars coming down are heavier than the cars going up. So it actually generates electricity. Because rather than having a huge brake which wastes all that energy in heat, you, know, you can make electricity with it at the second part of the day. That's interesting. Mm. So, so the electricity that it generates, it uses on itself? Well, it uses to help power the lights at the lower terminus, yeah. Now the peak tram itself is now longer than it used to be. Well, the, the tram cars are longer, which might mean that the ride is slightly shorter by 20 metres. <laughs> Part of that was because the cars are longer and the, the, the engineering that was required to make the room for these larger cars, but also because these days it's very important that you have wheelchair accessibility, which was impossible on the previous ones. And so the platform has to be at a certain angle maximum so you can put somebody in, in a wheelchair. So quite a lot of our work was in, actually involved in making sure that we could carry up to eight wheelchairs at any one time. Although our other principal objective is that we should simply be able to carry more people because they were queuing in the hot sun. So that was our other major objective was that the cars should be cooler when you get into them. So this was done how? Is this a, an air conditioning system? Well, it became apparent that if we wanted to run air conditioning within the cars all the way up to the peak, which is about a seven-minute journey, we would need one and a half tonnes of batteries in there. And there is a simple calculation you can do, which shows that instead of one and a half tonnes, if you don't take the batteries, then you take 20 more people. And so what we do instead is we use the cold air from the air conditioning in both the lower and upper terminus, and we blow it through, effectively through the structure of the tram, which is made of aluminium. Which is made of, of aluminium because that light weight also allowed us to carry more passengers, which is the basic idea of the whole thing. And then as it sets off, there are fans underneath the tram and they would blow what we would call ambient air, which is the outside air, but they blow it through the cooled structure. And so you get that cooling effect, which lasts about five or six minutes. But what people hate is a transition from one temperature to another, which is if you get out of an air-conditioned building into a hot tram, oh, you, you think it's worse than it is. People can't recognise the difference in three degrees, actually. And so the fact that you know, we slowly got back to the ambient temperature by we get to the top, you, know, you don't notice. So with the, the, this now, this uh, longer tram car, as you say, with an aluminium frame, when you were going up and down on that first day and then afterwards mm. studying this and also looking at the models in Switzerland, can you describe to me how 
these trams, as you say, they're based on uh, I mean, electricity. From is is the motor at the top or the bottom? All the, in a way, one of the tricky things about doing a funicular is that all the heavy stuff, all the drive mechanism, all the electric motors, and the gearboxes, they're all at the top of the mountain. So an, an interesting which is nothing to do with my input, but I was fascinated by it. So all that really heavy, serious stuff, you have to get to the top of the track. You, know, you can't have it at the bottom where a truck just stops outside and unloads it. And so the actual logistics of moving these huge pieces, the electric motors weigh about 13 tonnes and the gearbox weighs about 15 tonnes. So we're talking big pieces. So what's your feeling on the, the designers that came before you? in the 1880s? Well, they, I mean, they did not have the tools that we had, both tools in the digital sense of CAD, but also just in terms of machining things, you know, and so that actually making these huge pieces, and it wasn't like railway engineering, which was quite clunky and hefty, and if, if you got it near, then it would work fine. There was steam going out everywhere. And so they didn't have the advantages of the making skills we now have. So the fact that they worked as well and as reliably, you know, and for as long is, is, is a knockout, I think, historically. Prior to, I mean, it swaps over to electricity in the mid-20th century. So prior to that, it's steam. It, it was. It was steam. And it was, actually, it was steam from the, I mean, there were little, little funiculars in Switzerland earlier than that. And it might be that a horse or a cow would power it. I mean, a lot of farmers had a little funicular to move their sheep or cattle one beast at a time in a tiny funicular up the mountain to the pasture in the spring, you know, and that would be, yeah, either there would be a horse or if it was sheep, then a man would be turning a handle or pulling a rope very physically. And so the arrival of the steam engine obviously was good. And then the electricity, because, you know, a massive steam engine at the top of the peak, puffing and chuffing and blowing smoke, was probably not a that's much of a tourist attraction. Now we'd think that was quite fun because it's sort of old-fashioned. But at the time, I think they couldn't wait for the electricity to, to work it instead. Now, I, in 2017, spoke with a man called Michael Wright, who at the time was 105, and he was born in 1912 on the peak. And he used to describe how in his house there was a kitchen servant who would go down to Central go to the ice house, pick a great big block of ice, probably in sawdust, take it back up on the back of the peak. So he would sit on the peak tram to go back up so that they would have ice to refrigerate, in essence, their, their meat, their fish in the kitchen. And I was just going to put it forward to you that would there have been, with these blocks of ice on the back of the peak tram, could you have used that as a cooling device? Well, in truth, it's fascinating that you say that because with a friend of mine who works in things like air conditioning, we had a brainstorming session at which he said, well, you could have a hose firing chopped ice into a tank. And by the time we get to the top, it would probably have melted and it would go into the water system or it might end up back down at the lower terminals, turned back into ice. And we did actually look at that and he calculated the amount of ice and the time it would take to load it. And because there were various restrictions we'd given ourselves. One was we wanted the cars to be able to be filled within four minutes with the passengers. You know, and the ice was going to take longer than the four minutes. 
I mean, the story of the ISO is fascinating, isn't it? Because the people had a way of preserving the ice, often wrapped in... I mean, the Romans stored ice from the mountains in the winter in Hessian-wrapped sacking, you know, and buried them underground. So there was ice in the summer. I mean, people did like a bit of ice, that's for sure. So as well as the fundamental architecture, you know, and method of, of how the peak tram works... I love the details, and a lot of time went into, there's a, which I think is a very nice little piece, that's the intermediate station stop button holder. And it's just a lovely piece of, of aluminium sculpture. What about the seating these days? Well, I came up with the idea that maybe we could have, in the lower car, seats which face downhill. Though it, it turned out that it was better not to do the whole car, because people further up the car simply looked at the ceiling because you sit in a, in a different way. But the view you get, and I like it going up and down, the view coming down at night with the downhill-facing seats is breathtaking, and it's a view that you never got facing uphill. I mean, it, it's worked out. And what I notice is people queuing specifically to travel downhill in the downhill-facing seats. And there's a block of people who know, and they are standing by <laughs> the door. Designer Peter Stevens talking there on the revamped Hong Kong Peak Tram. And we'll return to that at the end of the programme. But as well as the Peak Tram, we also talked about other vehicles. Born in the UK in 1943, Peter Stevens would construct his first bicycle. He passed his driving test a day after his 17th birthday in his 1929 M-Type MG. And while he's designed some very fast cars, he also has some older ones in his collection. I've got a Ford 1928 Roadster pickup, which is a pickup truck, like for people who ever saw the Waltons, it's from that period. And I've got a little Citroen 2CV van, you know, which is also from late 60s, you know, because I like the utter simplicity of those. And there's an early Fiat 500 as well, so that goes with it. But I've also got a couple of 1930s racing hot rods, which is what American kids used to do in the 30s, where you could buy a Model T Ford for, at the time, they're $10, which would now be like $100 American. And then you'd put a Model A engine in it, which you bought from a wrecker's yard, and make a hot rod and go racing on the dry lakes in California. <laughs> and in fact, I've just bought back one I had and sold in 2003 for reasons escape me now, but I sold it then, and I've just bought it back. Because I do beach racing, both in Wales at Pendine Sands, where people like Sir Malcolm Campbell set records there in the 1920s, but also he raced as well on a beach in Denmark on an island called Romo, and we do beach racing there and at Wistrom in France. I mean, it's just great. You've just got five wires, you know, and you don't need a degree in electronics and code writing. If you're a hot rodder now, then you need to have someone who can crack the code in the electronic control unit of the car and fiddle with it. And there are people who do that. One of my pet things really is the liberation that being in, in control of your own transportation gives you. Is it also the speed? Yeah, speed's good. The, no, the speed is actually quite extraordinary. I mean, it, it's a different realm from what you see with, with race cars. You know, I like most people at the time, I thought I might, you know, like the idea of racing driver. That's a different realm, that's a different mindset, it's a different everything. And if you ever get taken out by a 
serious racer in a serious race car, if you've got any sense, you think this is not for me because this is a different realm of things. But they're going fast and they're going a bit faster than you did last year. It's great. My uncle was a famous motor racing journalist, but he was also, he was the navigator with Sterling Moss when they won the Millimilia in 1955. He'd been a motorcycle racer. Twice he was world champion on a motorcycle sidecar with an English guy called Eric Oliver and a Belgian guy called Massy. And he was the movable ballast in the sidecar. You know, and because he always had a beard, he could hang out the side of the sidecar and just feel his beard touching the ground so he knew that he couldn't lean out any further and he was convinced that having the beard meant that he could be more dynamic than others you know <laughs> and so and he he loved that experience which is why then when Sterling Moss invited him to ride as and it wasn't a passenger it was the kind of navigator and he invented a way of being able to tell Moss what corners were coming up next and what sort of speed they could be taken at. And he made a thing which was like a, almost an endless roll of toilet paper. And he could turn this little handle, and he'd written all the notes, pre-computer or anything like that. But in, in a little perspex window, he could see what was coming up next. And he did hand signals, because it was too noisy to speak to each other, which would say... The, the next corner is fourth gear and he'd do a little hand movement which said but it's a bit on the edge or easy fourth gear you know but quickly followed by a left-hander which is second gear and the gear got to be you know and so he'd kind of written all this stuff down which did help them enormously that that's for sure actually so your uncle was Dennis Jenkinson yeah so he did two things. He's he's the the sidecar man with the beard. Yeah, uh, phenomenal. Yeah, and and then he also is navigator for Sterling Moss in nineteen fifty five. Nineteen fifty five. So this is this Italian race. Yeah, the the milli milia literally means a, a thousand miles, and it was nonstop, and they were just like two minutes over ten hours, which meant it wasn't quite an average of a hundred miles an hour, which frustrated my uncle. More than did Moss, who said, no, it's winning it. I don't care if it's 99 or 101 miles now, you know. But Dennis was quite, yeah, he thought, oh, perhaps we could have done that. So he devised this machine, which he could indicate to Moss what type of corner was coming up. But I had a chance during the last proper public running of the car last year to sit in his very seat in that Mercedes at Mercedes-Benz have a track at Brooklands, which was an old racing circuit. And the guy who was driving it is the one who has demonstrated it for Mercedes for something like the past 40 years. And he was retiring on the Monday and the car was retiring on the Monday. And so I had a chance to do some laps with him at this circuit. And so where's Brooklyn's then? Brooklyn's is just to the southwest of London. It was built by a, a man who realised that if the British motor industry, this was 1907, if the British motor industry was to compete with the foreigners, then we needed a high-speed track where we could test the cars. And he built it with his own money. And it's still there, but it's got bits missing because parts were chopped out of it during the Second World War. But there was a chance to ride round in this car. And I, when I got in there, it was actually more emotional than I had expected. 
and I thought, well, this is, I am sitting in the seat, on the seat, touching the bits that my uncle did for 10 hours to win the millimelia. And either I burst into tears or I concentrate on what's happening. So I have to concentrate and experience this remarkable thing. And so I had like 10 minutes instead of 10 hours in it. you had a, a good friendship with your uncle I mean he, he did projects with you didn't um, he he was yeah he because he loved Meccano and he taught me to make all kinds of fantastic things like complete cars or how to even make a gearbox with the Meccano gears I mean he was a very strange but in a very interesting way person and there was a period at which he was living back at home in the very early 50s with his parents and I spent time with my my grandmother there and he just loved to do Meccano and the chance to do Meccano with somebody and because I was very receptive to it and then with my first car I can remember when I drove down to see him and it had a really rotten exhaust system on it and he said oh we can't let you go back with an exhaust system like that and he got out bits of pipe and all this stuff and he welded up a better exhaust system you know which also introduced me to the idea that welding was good fun <laughs> which it is <laughs> it's like the power of the gods being able to do welding <laughs> like a Norse god it was really so that was really good good fun and so yeah I did have this this very good friendly close relationship with him and the nice bit was he was my mother's brother and he and my dad were spectacularly good friends and my father would often travel to like Grand Prix races in in Italy or France and then he would go to art galleries you know, and while Dennis was at the circuit. and Because yes, the, your he, father was an artist. Yeah, yeah, he was an artist, yeah. And then in the evening, they'd both go and watch an opera because they both loved opera in Italy. start off I mean you've described in previous interviews a love of woodwork the fact that you construct your first bicycle well this is true I mean I, I went to a grammar school in it was extraordinary well it was in the city of London at that time and this was a long time after the second world war it was surrounded by bomb sites still and bomb buildings you know and part of the science block was where a bomb had hit and so the, all the corridors were blocked off because you fall out the end of it and it was some of it I really enjoyed and some of it I I really didn't enjoy at all actually but the guy who taught woodwork he was a master both at woodwork but also encouraging you that it could be design as well and we did things like we had to design a little stool and then make it and he used to get so frustrated that some of the kids didn't know what designing might be and he'd have a kind of plan that they would work to and they'd all make the same boring stool you see and I wanted to make something different and he thoroughly encouraged me in that actually and the proper use of of tools and things and how you carry a chisel if you're walking around in the in the workshop 
How do you carry a chisel if you're walking around in the workshop? You hold it by the blade with your finger against, but not round the corner of the sharp bit of the blade, and it's pointing down and you carry it next to your leg, you know? And I can still remember exactly. And he used to explode if people ran around, you know, waving it like a sword or something. So I, I liked all of that stuff. And yeah, because our family wasn't wealthy at all, my father became the, well, he ran a furniture museum actually in the East End of London. So he was the creator of it. But at that time, it wasn't a particularly well-paid thing, which was fascinating because there were still companies that were Chippendale that came originally from, you know, the furniture maker Chippendale and people like that, which was extraordinary. So I couldn't afford a new bicycle at the time at all. But there was near where my godfather lived, there was a sort of, it, it was where they dumped old farm equipment. And it was kind of like chalk bit thing. And there was a bicycle frame in there. And so I carried out the bicycle frame and I cleaned it up. And then I found a couple of wheels. I had to buy the tyres, which I had to save up. Because my father said, if you want a bicycle, then make one. And I'll help out eventually, I, you know, buy the paint or something. And so I made the bicycle, yeah. And so when I went to college, first thing I did was to make a motorcycle as well mm. from, from bits and pieces when I went to design college. Because I just kind of like <laughs> like doing that. I still do like doing that stuff. Oh, creating a motorcycle, though. Well, that was that was good, and it was because my uncle at the time he was doing motorcycle sprint racing, which is like a quarter mile race, and often it was along the seafront at places like Ramsgate and Margate and Brighton in England, and you raced along the seafront. Quarter a mile on the road, quarter mile, yeah, which was uh, it's quite long enough to go fast at the end, and I would go along with my uncle to help push start the bike, and he encouraged me to build a bike myself, just a little fifty cc one. But then he showed me how we could run it on methanol fuel and we could make it lighter and lighter, uh, which was, was, so that was, you know, I was sort of doing all that and it it just seemed to me that that's sort of what you did, you know. I didn't have any problem with that at all. Peter Stevens there on Slow Cars, Fast Cars and Family. And now, just to finish off, we return to the very steep May Road station on the Peak Tram. It's a real thrill because... It's not until then that you realise how steep it is when it goes through May Road. And it is a very, it's, it's one of the steepest. Now you're describing how you got off at the different platforms. Did you have special tra uh, trams waiting for you then? No, I just pushed the button, which... So it can, it's still, it's... Oh, it still is. And, and, or you can get on at those. And really? You, and there's a button. I mean, it's just weird. People don't know. I thought you were just talking aesthetics. No, 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 you can do it. And May Road is fascinating to get off at. There's one particular set of doors that opens for May Road and your brain doesn't talk to your legs and your legs don't talk to your brain. So when you step out, it is utterly disorientating and there's a handrail there on the platform. Because it's so steep. Because it's so steep and so your legs aren't expecting the, I mean, you, you land on a horizontal bit and it's perfectly safe, but it's just funny that your mind is giving you different messages from those that are coming from your hands and your feet. You know? So these days, taking the peak tram, I always thought, yes, you've completely corrected me there, I always thought that it's now a tourist thing from one stop to the other. Can you actually get off and get back on again? 
Yes, you can. I mean, you can get off and then you can get the next one. And at Barker Road, a lot of wedding couples like to have pictures taken there. And so they, the photographer takes all his kit up on the, the tram as well. And they get off at Barker Road because the view is spectacular from there. Yeah, so you, and then you can, you can ask it to stop. No, you can do it. And that, you know, and the, the operation of the buttons, it is a treat. It was made by a, a company in the UK that I do a lot of work with who make lovely... I mean, they make special pieces for Rolls-Royce. Ah, oh, attention to detail. I'll have a look at those buttons when I have my first trip on the revamped Hong Kong Peak Tram later in January and record the trip for Hong Kong Heritage when I'll sit in the downward-facing seats and the upwards-facing too. My thanks to British designer Peter Stevens. I enjoyed our chat, talking there on the Peak Tram and his wonderful uncle, Dennis Jenkinson. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Music